You are listening to audio from Central Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you would like to get more involved or get more information about our church, stick around after the message. Malachi chapter 2. I was, I don't know, 17 years old. We were having a little preaching thing at my home church. And one of the young men before me got up and preached from Malachi, but he didn't call it Malachi. He called it Malachi. And nobody knew where to go in the Bible. But we're in Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi. So we're going to get back to Genesis, Lord willing, here in a couple of weeks. Um, Next Wednesday, we are praying about observing the Lord's Supper. Um, so Lord willing, probably the week thereafter, we should get back to Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter three here in a couple of weeks, but I don't know if you remember, but we started, it's been three weeks ago now, um, a little thing on divorce and we didn't finish it that evening. So we're going to try to finish that tonight. Um, so, um, just as a recap, we looked at Probably the second most well-known passage on marriage and divorce is 1 Corinthians 7. We looked at what Paul said about divorce. He, he added another way to um, divorce your spouse and not just adultery. You know, Jesus added that in Matthew 19. Um, but then Paul adds one where he talks about if there's an unbeliever, and then obviously you can, um, if the unbeliever... Um, leaves the marriage, then you are free to divorce. Um, we talked about all that that meant, how it can mean more than just them, you know, getting in their car and driving away. Um, we talked about how it could um, mean things like abuse and even myriad of other things if you follow the order for church discipline. Um, uh, we talked about how um, death of the spouse obviously ends a marriage. Um, so we talked about those things. Um, really, we centered on that. But today, we are talking about a rather interesting one. I didn't give a handout, and that's on purpose, um, because this is an interesting chapter. I don't know what version of the Bible you have, um, but we're going to read this one in a number of them, just so you can see something. When I was in college, we took a Hebrew class, for the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. We took a Greek class. Most of the New Testament, well, all of the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, and so we had to um, go to Isaiah 53, and we had to look at the English translation and then translate into Hebrew. Um, and then we had to look at the Hebrew of what one of the manuscripts has and then translate it into English without looking at the Bible. And it was interesting to see how that happens. We had to do it the same with John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. We had to translate the Greek from Greek to English, and then we had to do it from English to Greek, and just to see what, and then we had to read it in front of everybody. <laughs> so obviously, most of us got really close to John 3.16. Um, but besides John 3.16, there was a lot of variations between what the translations were. What do you think it did? 
allowed us to see how, how difficult it is. And one of the reasons it's difficult, especially in the Greek, if you look at a Greek sentence, and the Apostle Paul is known for this, the Apostle Peter is known for this, sometimes their sentences are longer than 30 words. Do you remember diagramming a sentence? It would be terrible to diagram a sentence from the Apostle Paul. Um, and, you know, they're huge sentences. But the thing is, you know, in English, there's an order, right? Left to right. Well, there's, there's a noun, a verb, maybe a direct ob- uh, object. And, you know, it's fairly simple, straightforward. But in the Greek, it's not that way. You literally, if there's 30 words in a Greek sentence, about 90% of them could be moved wherever you want to put them, and it wouldn't change the meaning. Now, that's really cool, but it can make translation difficult because what um, the, the ends of the words or the beginnings of the words determine the um, weight of importance of the word. And so it's, it's an unbelievable thing. One thing that we asked our teachers, what was the hardest verse to translate from Greek to English. And we asked our Hebrew teacher, what was the hardest verse to translate from Hebrew to English? Um, In the Greek, we had a number of different responses from different teachers we had. Um, But Hebrew, the exact same answer. And I've looked, and I've, you know, I've done study on this, and just about every Hebrew scholar you'll find gives the exact same answer. The hardest verse. Now, obviously, you know, they're not translated from verses, but in the English Bible, the hardest verse to translate in the entire Bible is Malachi 2.16. Malachi 2.16, which makes it difficult, especially for what we're talking about today. Um, And it really just has to do with the first portion of it. Um, But I have this question that... um, so if you're at the marriage retreat, I preached on Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15, talking about the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Um, but verse 16 follows it. We didn't talk about that at the marriage retreat. But it says this, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. In the King James Version, when you read putting away, I believe even in the Greek when Jesus Talks that they translate it this way. Putting away means divorce. So just to make it simple, it says, God hates divorce. It goes on to say, for one covers violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your sight that ye deal not treacherously, uh, unfaithfully, um, you know, haphazardly. Um, so you have this verse, and, you know, here it seems pretty obvious. God hates divorce. But my question is, and we'll look at this passage here in a second, if God says he hates divorce, what about Ezra chapter 10? We'll look at that here in a moment. Um, But I just want you to see something. Now, listen, I'm a KJV guy, but one thing I do appreciate is the time it takes to translate something, the work it takes, and I just want you to see the variations. Um, uh, So if you have a different version, you might even get some of this now. The CSB is one of the newer translations. Um, It's an offshoot of the Holman. And it says this, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel. See, here it's the husband who hates. It's not God. Um, The NIV says this, 
The man who hates and divorces his wife. So the NIV and the CSB are closer. The, AM, the Amplified Version says this, For the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I hate divorce and separation. The ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. The New King James says, For the Lord, God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. The NLT, New Living Translation, says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, God of Israel. So you have this passage, and the reason why there's such a variation, and I looked at it today on a Bible study program I have, is it is terribly complicated, just the way that the words and the letters are put together, that it's tough to translate. But I think we can all agree that changes the meaning some, whether it's the husband who hates and divorces, or whether it's God who hates divorce. Um, because this would be the only place in all of the Bible that says God hates divorce. Um, now, in my opinion, that really fits well because of what it says in Malachi 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll let you read those on your own. Um, uh, and in my opinion, I believe the King James has it perfect. I believe this is what is being trying to be said here is that it's not just the man who hates his wife and then divorces her, it's God who hates divorce because, verse 15 and 14, it breaks the covenant. It breaks the covenant. Um, so um, if you have a different version there, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that it is a very difficult verse to translate, but I would side, whether you agree with me or not, with the King James Version there. All right. So with that kind of as a foundation, Let's go to Ezra. We're going to start in chapter number 9. If you find Psalms, take a left turn. You'll find Job. You'll find Esther. You'll find Nehemiah. Right before Nehemiah, you'll find Ezra. In Deuteronomy 7, which is important for this passage... God commanded his people not to marry foreign women. Now, preachers today in certain churches have taken that to mean that um, there shouldn't be interracial marriage. And usually it comes down to um, white people shouldn't marry black people. That is not what that means. Um, uh, that is not the command there. The purpose for Deuteronomy chapter 7 was simply because the other nations were heathens. And first, um, the New Testament backs up this point. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry an unchristian, no matter if they're white, black, or any other color. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 7 is talking about. But with that in mind, we need to read Ezra chapter number 9. We're going to do this um, step by step. So verse 1 says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me. So what is the things? The things that were done was Ezra gets to move into home. Ezra takes a group of people. They get back to the homeland, Jerusalem. He's finally getting settled in. He's excited about what God's going to do back in his homeland. Jerusalem's coming back. The temple, the nation of Israel's coming home. It's going to be great. And don't you know it, right when everything's about to turn good, here comes the devil. <laughs> because it's about to turn really ugly. It says, the people of Israel... Look what it includes, the priests, the Levites, 
have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. And they give a list. The Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the uh, Gingivitis, you know, all these different people. Egyptians and Amorites. Um, I mean, they were just marrying all of them. It's almost like they had a, a challenge. How many can we get? <laughs> marrying everybody. Verse 2 says, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. Hey, Ezra, welcome home. <laughs> and here's the thing. If I'm, I think I might even um, tell us. Maybe I don't. But, I mean, there's a huge number of them that I believe they may even list some of their names. Think about this. If you read Ezra chapter 10, yeah, the, vast, the last part of the, the chapter is just a list of probably just some of the men that married these women. So for all the rest of time, we're going to get to know who committed the abomination. Isn't that crazy? That God thought to put their names in there? Could you imagine getting called out for getting a divorce? <laughs> and it being saved in God's word for all of eternity? Do you know one of the books that's going to be in heaven forever? God's word. I wonder if we're going to get to find those guys and say, like, man, how do you feel about that? <laughs> all time. There they are. So Ezra gets there, and here's Ezra's reaction, verse number three. And when I heard this thing... I rent my garment. He knew how serious this was. I mean, he knew the teaching. I rent my garment and my mantle. It says that he plucked off his hair of his head and of his beard. And he sat down astonished. I mean, he's upset. You guys couldn't even let me get my dishes unpacked, right? I, I'm upset. He's ripping out his clothes. He's ripping off his hair. I mean, good. I've never been that upset. I don't have enough to lose. Can I get some witnesses? You know what I'm saying? God's doing the ripping for me. Verse number four. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the word of the God of Israel. Now, here's the good thing, though. These folks knew that they messed up. These folks knew that they were in sin, and their response was perfect. I don't know how long they lived with it. The Bible doesn't give us those details. Some of them probably years. But at least at this point, they know we've done wrong. We need to repent. And so they come to him trembling. Verse 4 continues, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonied until the evening sacrifice. So it must have been a long thing. People given their size of the story. Um, and so the next about 10 verses, we're not going to read all those. Ezra uh, prays over the people. He summarizes the history. He uh, begs God not to destroy those who had just gotten back. <laughs> um, he even believes that they all should be killed. Deuteronomy tells us that. The judgment should have come swiftly. 
But now look at verse number 1 of chapter 10. Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping, and casting himself down before the house of God, just, if, if I were you, it's underlined in my Bible, I would underline that. Not because maybe you've ever been in that position personally, with you know divorcing some or getting married to someone that wasn't in the faith, but just the way they handled the sin. When was the last time you cried about yours? When was the last time you were you were so moved that you literally cast yourself down? You know, one of the reasons why we have an invitation time on Sundays is so that people that know that there's sin in their life they need to take care of, they can literally humble themselves physically in front of the presence of God. Listen, it's a biblical thing. These people were so upset by what they had done wrong, they realized death was the appropriate response from God, and they were seeking forgiveness because of what God could do to them. So it says, They're assembled unto him out of Israel, a very great congregation, men, women, and children, for the people wept sore. <laughs> um, unbelievable. I mean, the entire service, people are just crying. And they didn't have any sound system type stuff, so Ezra's having to talk over the people crying. Um, and so what he does is he begins to formulate a plan. Look at verse number 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land, yet, not, yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Look what it says. To put away all the wives. What does put away mean? Divorce. Divorce. And such are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. So not only the wives, and I'm assuming maybe even the women that married husbands from the land, um, but it says they're children too, casting them out. Verse 4 says, Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee, be of good courage, and do it. Then arose Ezra, made the chief priests, the Levites, and all of Israel, to swear that they should do according to this word. And they swear. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, and when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. Just another quick thing. I believe right now is Ramadan. Is that right? Does that sound right? Ramadan? Yeah. Um, and so at schools, they have a special section for those that celebrate Ramadan. And um, so their children have an, a place to go so they're not watching all their friends eat. This is, you know, I think that's a good thing. Um, what it has done is um, kids come home with questions, including mine. Um, and 
um, I think it's a great opportunity to talk to them about what real fasting is. And one of the things that we really should be fasting over is personal sins. Or not just personal sins, maybe sins in the church. Not maybe just sins in the church, but sins in our country. These things should affect us as believers. Um, I mean, the school shootings that have happened, those should affect us. Uh, we should mourn over those things. Um, uh, the, all of the, the, the natural disasters, uh, the tornado, um, those things, should, they should impact us. And we should, it, it should, as a Christian, someone that has the Holy Spirit within us, it should grieve us like it grieves him. And it should cause us to fast and mourn. Look at verse number 7. And they made proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem, and that whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and of the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. So if uh, an Israelite didn't come back, he was no longer an Israelite. They were taking this stuff serious. So they formulate this plan, and if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see all that they do. Um, and uh, so it's an unbelievable thing. And then hundreds of people get divorced. And it seems like God is the one that approves of it. Because if you know the story, after Ezra, Nehemiah, and here comes Israel coming back. Jerusalem comes back. God seems to bless divorce in this case. In my opinion, one of the reasons that we have this in the Bible is so um, Paul can build that doctrine in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, but what in the world is going on? A few things I want to point out. Ruth and Rahab were foreign women that not only married Jewish men, but were praised for their faith and are both in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. So we've we got to remember that this wasn't because they were foreign. Okay? This wasn't because they lived in a different country, had a different skin color. Had nothing to do with that. There are people that were from a different country and may have had a different skin color than Jesus, but they're listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay? And one of them, her profession, was a prostitute. <laughs> so obviously, those sins can be forgiven. And as the important thing is, are they a believer? Another point. The idea seems to be, um, don't marry folks that are unbelievers. It has to do about their heart and not their color of their skin. Um, we also need to remember that what we read in Ezra is under the Old Testament law and is not binding to Christians today. Okay? Um, in the New Testament, it is not a sin um, uh, to... Um, it, is, it is a sin to marry a non-believer. It talks about that in 2 Corinthians. Um, uh, but it is not a sin to stay married to an unbeliever if you get saved after you're married. Okay? Um, and the reason is because you can then be the greatest gospel light in the unbelieving spouse's home. Um, and I've seen it happen a number of times. A, a wife gets saved or a husband gets saved, and maybe even years later, the spouse gets saved. And it's because of the loving forgiveness, you know, all of the patience 
from the believing spouse. Okay? Um, so, I think the example in Ezra is relevant to us today because it shows that though there are some pretty stringent laws in the Bible for divorce, there are times when it is beneficial for a people to separate, a, a, a couple to separate, if it's for the greater good. And in this case, it was most certainly for the greater good. Okay, any questions? They must have had to go back to their homelands. Um, now, it would have been much harder for the ladies um, because, you know, many times, the, especially in those days, their income came from husband. But if they gave them a bill of divorcement, which I'm sure that they did, um, it would have allowed them to get, go home and remarry again. More than likely, if they would have gone to a different nation, they wouldn't have been accepted. The only place they could have gone would have been somewhere... And then by, by home, I don't mean probably in the same village, but in the same country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my word. <laughs> you think Israel had divorce lawyers back in that day? Huh. Yeah, he would have been a pretty rich man. <laughs> Any other questions? All right, we got another humdinger. Go to Jeremiah chapter number three. If you find Isaiah, take a right. Right after Isaiah is Jeremiah. All right, verse number one, it says this. They say, if a man put away his wife. What does put away mean? Divorce. And she go from him and become with another man's, shall he return unto her again? This is obviously a reference to Deuteronomy um, 24. We talked about that when we talked about our divorce dilemma. Shall not the land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places, and see where thou hast not been lean with, and the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a whore's forehead. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I've tried looking that up. I haven't been able to find anything. I don't <laughs> so just so you know, if you ask me that question later, I have no answer for you. I can't point at anybody and say it looks like that. <laughs> All right. All right. You all need a little bit of sense of humor, okay? Thou hast refuses to be ashamed. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, my father, thou art the guide of my youth? Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done all evil things as thou could. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, 
Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, After she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So just brief history. Israel's one nation now. Judah is another. They have separated. Verse 8 says, And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had done what? Put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So we have something interesting. In this prophecy from, um, prophecy from um, Jeremiah to Judah, he's talking about something that had just recently happened. He's talking about how Israel had cheated on God and how God divorced Israel. Isn't that interesting? It literally is telling us here that God is divorced. Did you know that was in the Bible? (laughs) It's interesting to read and then to try to work through. Here's what happened. Israel had gotten um, so much wealth that they thought they didn't need God. And whenever they got so much wealth that they didn't think they needed the true God, what did they do? They used their wealth to build false gods, which is what is being described in the first eight verses of this chapter. Israel built False gods put them under trees or used the trees to build false gods. They, they put them in their doors. They put them on their mantles. They, they put false gods everywhere. And in the Bible, idolatry is compared to spiritual adultery. And so they were playing the role of the uh, unfaithful spouse, but not just with one false god. The Bible is, talks about how many different false gods. It's almost like their imagination couldn't think up enough of them. There was false gods everywhere, and this spiritual adultery ended up impacting God so much that he allowed them to be divorced. And uh, what happened was the Assyrian army came in and took them out in just barbaric fashion. The Assyrians thought they were taking more land, but really it was God's judgment. Judah, I don't know why they didn't just go to Judah as well, but whatever kept them away, obviously it was God's providence. Um, the Assyrian army stopped shy of Judah. But here's the thing. Judah saw it all. The Bible just told us it did. And instead of that being the um, keystone moment for them to repent, they started acting like Israel too. And instead of repenting, they begin to worship these false gods. And so now they're doing the exact same thing that their sister, Israel, had just done. And so Jeremiah is pleading with the uh, nation, the tribe of Judah, and saying, you got to stop or God's going to treat you the exact same way. Now, a couple things. One, this is all metaphoric language. God uses today the illustration of we are um, husband, and, or we are bride, and he is the groomsman. Uh, the, the church is the bride, he is the groomsman. Obviously, this is spiritual language, 
Um, it's not a physical union at all. It's the same way for the nation of Israel. Those were his people. Um, they were, uh, he was their God. Uh, it was spiritual language. And so this is a metaphorical term, but they use the term on purpose to show how serious of a judgment this was. God spiritually cut them off and they faced the judgment because of that. Listen to me, friend. The same God that spiritually cut off Israel would do the exact same thing to us if we let other gods rule our hearts and minds. Um, so did God get divorced? In my opinion, it's just metaphorical language that God uses to emphasize the importance of Judah to repent. Okay? Any questions? You can read the rest of the chapter and you'll find in verses 11, 14, 23, God calls on them to come back and he will accept them back. All right? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We're located at 700 North Walnut Creek Drive in Mansfield, Texas. You can visit our website at cbcmansfield.com or follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CBC Mansfield. Thanks again for joining us.